Welcome to Mars Messina Presents. I am Mars Messina, and today is Saturday, April 9th, 2022. Today is Mars Messina Presents first year anniversary or one year anniversary. We've been doing this for an entire year, broadcasting to you every week, and we're so glad to be here, and we hope that you are glad to be here too. And I was trying to figure out something fun, festive, something good for today's show. And as it turns out, episode 52 is not fun or festive, but it is a good show with a vitally important message for us all. So to those ends, may we all listen, remember, and feel compelled to meaningful action as we discussed, I'm sorry, discuss Holocaust survivors of Skokie, Illinois, and what they did with their uh, trials and traumas to make a really wonderful, meaningful life. So the reason I'm talking about this is yesterday I visited the Illinois Holocaust Museum in Skokie, Illinois, and I would like to tell you about a few of the exhibits they presently have on display. But first, I want to begin by telling you about the history behind the museum. So in 1977, the village of Skokie, Illinois, had a population of approximately 70,000 people, of whom approximately 40,500 were Jewish. Included within this Jewish population were thousands who survived detention in Nazi concentration camps. On March 20th of that year, Frank Collin, the leader of the National Socialist Party of America, also known as the Nazi Party, informed Skokie's police chief that the National Socialists intended to march on the village's sidewalk on May 1st of 1977. As a result of media attention and a number of phone calls allegedly made by Nazi party members to residents with, in quote, Jewish names, talk of this planned demonstration became widespread throughout Skokie's Jewish community, again, which was extensive. Colin also wrote a letter to Skokie officials stating that the purpose of the demonstration was to protest Skokie Park District's ordinance requiring a bond of $350,000 to be posted prior to the issuance of a park permit. He also stated that the demonstration would consist of 30 to 50 demonstrators marching in a single uh, file line in front of the Skokie Village Hall. The demonstrators intended to wear uniforms similar to those those, uh, traditionally worn by Nazis, including swastika armbands. Colin explained that the demonstrators would not make any derogatory public statements and would cooperate with reasonable, reasonable police instructions. Before the Skokie proposal, 
Cullen and his neo-Nazi group, the NSPA, would regularly hold demonstrations in Marquette Park, which is a neighborhood in Chicago where the NSPA was headquartered. Skokie, I'm sorry, Chicago. Chicago authorities would eventually block the demonstrations by requiring the NSPA to post, hello, a $350,000 public safety insurance bond and by banning political demonstrations in Marquette Park. While Colin did file a lawsuit against the city of Chicago for a violation against his First Amendment rights, he realized that this case would get tied up in the courts for far longer than he was willing to wait to begin marching again. So, on October 4th, 1976, Colin sent out letters to park districts of the North Shore suburbs of Chicago requesting permits for the NSPA to hold a white power demonstration. While some suburbs chose to just ignore the letter, Skokie chose to respond. Again, there's a huge Jewish population in Skokie and many at that time were Holocaust survivors. So at first, the Skokie mayor and village council intended to allow the NSPA to demonstrate. Their tactic was to ignore the demonstration, though, which would give the NSPA as little publicity as possible. The Jewish community, however, found this decision unacceptable and consequently held meetings throughout the month of April to discuss the matter. The mayor and the village council heard their concerns and on April 27, 1977, ordered village attorney Harvey Schwartz to seek an injunction. Now, a little bit before that, about a month before that, on March 20th, Cullen notified the chief of police and park district of the NSPA's intentions to demonstrate for their right to free speech. On May, uh, on May 1st, in the letters, he stated that about 30 to 50 members again planned to demonstrate outside of Village Hall again from about 3 to 3.30 p.m. And they planned to hold up signs demanding free speech for white men, including the phrases white free speech, free speech for white Americans, and free speech for the white men. Now, if you don't know history, the Nazis didn't consider Jews to be white. There was an Aryan race, there was a mixed race, and then there were the Jews. And that's how they saw the world. So that's, not only is that white supremacist saying white free speech or free speech for whites, They're also saying, none for Jews, just so you know. On May 2nd, 1977, the village of Skokie additionally passed three ordinances to prevent any future event like the NSPA's request. One states that people could not wear military-style uniforms during demonstrations. 
the two other ordinances prohibited the distribution of material containing hate speech and a required $350,000 insurance bond again to hold a demonstration, just like Chicago did. These ordinances rendered it impossible for the NSPA to be able to hold the event. So in response to that, Colin used both the injunction and ordinances as an opportunity to claim infringement again upon his First Amendment rights and subsequently wanted to protest in Skokie for his free speech. So he's not... Here's the thing with Colin. He didn't drop his lawsuit in Chicago at this point but he's not letting Skokie get away with it. The District Court of Cook County conducted a hearing on a motion by the village of Skokie for the preliminary injunction. The court considered Cullen's letter as an affidavit and took the testimony of a number of Skokie residents. One resident testified that a number of Jewish organizations planned a counter demonstration for the same day with an expected expected attendance of 12 to 15,000 protesters <clears throat> and that the appearance of Nazi demonstrators could well lead to violence. The mayor of Skokie also testified that the demonstration could lead to uncontrollable violence. The court entered an order enjoining defendants from marching, walking, or parading, or otherwise displaying the swastika on or off their person on May 1st, 1977. The Nazi party applied to the Illinois Appellate Court for a stay of the district court's injunction. The appellate court denied their application. On appeal, listen to this, the Illinois Supreme Court also denied the petition for a stay. Controversially, the ACLU appealed on behalf of NSPA to the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, usually when you uh, hear about ACLU getting involved in cases. It's usually for some liberal cause, okay? But here they're really being a stickler about First Amendment rights, so they actually sided with the Nazis. They said, you know, First Amendment rights are First Amendment rights for all. So the ACLU appealed on behalf of NSPA to the Supreme Court of the United States. In fact, a lot of ACLU members quit when that happened. Excuse me while I have a little drinky of water. On June 14th of 1977, the Supreme Court ordered Illinois to hold a hearing on the ruling against the National Socialist Party of America emphasizing that, in quote, if a state seeks to impose a restraint on First Amendment rights, it must provide strict procedural safeguards, including immediate appellate review. 
Absent such review, the state must instead allow a stay. In its full review of the case, the Illinois Supreme Court focused on the First Amendment implications of the display of the swastika. Skokie attorneys argued that for Holocaust survivors, seeing the swastika was like being physically attacked. Now, in 1977, I don't know if they were talking much about PTSD, but this is what they're alluding to. The state Supreme Court rejected that argument, ruling that display of the swastika is a symbolic form of free speech entitled to First Amendment protections and determined that the swastika itself did not constitute fighting words. Its ruling allowed the National Socialist Party of America to march. On remand, the Illinois Supreme Court sent the case back to the Illinois Appellate Court. The Appellate Court ruled on July 11, 1977, that the swastika was not protected by the First Amendment. In other words, the NSPA could march, but they could not display the swastika during the march. In parallel litigation in the federal courts, under the caption Cullen v. Smith, the village's ordinance was declared unconstitutional, first by the district court, and then by divided vote of the Seventh Circuit Court Court of Appeals. Over a published dissent by Justice Blackman, joined by Justice White, giving a detailed history of the case and an overview of the issues involved, the U.S. Supreme Court denied further review. Cullen would send another letter on June 22, 1977, with the same details for a protest planned for July 4th from 12 to 12.30 p.m. Ultimately, however, the NSPA failed to carry through its march in Skokie, and again, they went to Chicago where they were allowed to finally march and they had gained their permission back in Marquette Park. In the summer of 1978, in response to the Supreme Court's decision, some Holocaust survivors up in Skokie set up a museum on the main street there to commemorate those who had died in the concentration camps. The Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center remains open today having been moved to a permanent location on Woods Drive in 2009. And that museum has been Chicagoland survivors' long-held vision of opening a world-class educational institution. It became a reality with the opening of this museum. The Illinois Holocaust Museum is the third largest Holocaust museum in the world. And since 2010, Holocaust survivor Fritzi Fritschel served as its president until she died last year in 2021. Now, if you go to this place, it actually, from the outside, it looks like a concentration camp. On the inside, it kind of looks like a concentration camp, but it's a museum. But they're letting you know 
like what kind of edifice this was that human beings were forced to live and die in. Okay. So, um, speaking of Fritzy Fritzel or Fritzschall, Fritzschall, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Fritzy Fritzschall's Holocaust story. The Nazis occupied Fritzy's hometown of Klucharki, part of Czechoslovakia, where Fritzy was born, and then part of Hungary from 1938 to 1944. They deported Fritzy, her mother, and two brothers to Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp when Fritzy was a young teenager. Her mother, two younger brothers, and other family members were all murdered. According to Fritzy, there is no way to describe what it was like to be in the rail car, hungry, cold, without food, without water, watching pregnant women begging for water, watching different people dying in front of you from lack of food, air, and water. My own grandfather died in this car going to Auschwitz. She watched him die. She was so afraid. She goes, there was never a moment where you were not in terror the whole time you were constantly in terror. To survive, she pretended to be older than she was. Because I guess this is a point where they're just throwing the children, you know, into the gas chambers. Fritzi endured a torturous year in Auschwitz and a related Nazi labor camp. She said the barracks that they were living in were beyond hell, and she goes, the labor camps were worse. She was forced to work during slave, doing slave labor in a factory because she was the youngest in this slave labor group of about 600 women. Fritzi was selected as the one prisoner most likely to survive. And the women around her wanted her to live so that she could go and tell the world their story. They were frightened that they would be forgotten and that no one would believe this story. So they said, you have to survive and you have to tell our story. So to those ends, the women gave Fritzi a crumb off of their daily bread and they did this every single day. And once the 599 women each gave Fritzi their crumb, the crumbs themselves um, smushed together amounted to the size of a large marble. And it was this extra daily serving of marble-sized bread that allowed Fritzi to survive. A marble size of bread. And this extraordinary woman lived to be 91 because of that. In 1945, Fritzi was finally liberated by the Soviet army after escaping into a nearby forest during a death march. And it's a really good thing she did because in World War II, when you were liberated... Sometimes those liberating armies would rape girls and women and sometimes men, and in some cases, even animals. So it was really good that she escaped into that forest. After the war in 1946, 
Fritzy came to Skokie, Illinois, and reunited with her father, who worked for Vienna Beef, and had come to America before the Holocaust to provide his family with money from abroad. Fritzy married a U.S. veteran of World War II, who had been a prisoner of war in the Pacific, and she made a life for herself in Chicagoland as a hairdresser, and um, she became an avid Cubs fan in the process. I will forgive her that. Fritzi's call to activism began when Colin and his fellow neo-Nazis threatened the march that we just talked about through the streets of, of Skokie. The terror and the outrage of seeing swastikas in their community galvanized a group of survivors, including Fritzi, to establish this museum and to fight bigotry with education. The Foundation of Survivors was a small but passionate operation housed in the modest storefront on Skokie's Main Street. Again, that was their original location, and the big museum is nearby. Fritzy said, We said we came to a free country, and we don't need to be afraid to say we are Jews. We don't need to be afraid to walk out on the street and be identified. We are not wearing the yellow armbands any longer. Back in 1990, Fritzy, with other survivors, convinced Governor James Thompson of Illinois to sign the first Holocaust education mandate into law, making Illinois the first state in the country to require the teaching of the Holocaust in all public elementary and high schools. She said, I want to encourage teacher training and student learning about man's continued inhumanity to man. And I got to tell you, as um, somebody who was brought up in the school system in Illinois, um, I learned about the Holocaust early, early on because I lived in a highly Jewish population and I would see grandmothers with the numbers burned into their forearms and I would ask them what that was. And um, there was one time I had a music teacher. Um, I think this was in sixth grade. She denied the Holocaust happened and we all gasped in horror and it shut her up just us gasping in horror that she would even say such a thing. Shut her up. So it's a really good thing we had that education. Under Fritzi's leadership, the museum grew to inspire more than 285,000 individuals annually, teaching them to stand up for what is right, transforming powerful lessons of history into positive actions today. The museum has also received national acclaim, including recognition as a 2017 recipient of the National Medal from the Institute of Museum and Library Science, the nation's highest award to a museum. I also want to add that not only um, are there exhibits um, in movies and activities dedicated to the Holocaust, but also to the plight of... um, African slaves, uh, to LGBTQIA, did I say that right? I'm sorry, LGBTQIA plus. Um, So there's a big exhibit to Stonewall right now. Um, 
you know, there were um, Korean women were forced into prostitution during the Korean War. And um, there's so many other um, genocides, um, the Native Americans in the Skokie Museum. It dedicates shows and exhibits to all kinds of genocides, um, African genocides as well. Um, but the big, the big main event is the Holocaust. But they touch on everything because they don't want this happening to anyone. They've lived through it. They don't want to live through it again. They don't want it to happen to anyone else. So it's a great place and it's very educational for children as well. Um, <clears throat> Susan Abrams, the CEO of Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center, said, Fritzy was the heart and soul of our museum. She played an important role in the museum, transforming from regional player to global leader, sharing her story of survival and its lessons through cutting-edge technology, including interactive holograms and virtual reality film. I regularly watched in awe as Fritzy mesmerized audiences with her story and its lessons. All who were touched by her will never forget. She was an inspiration to me and to so many others. And like I said, Fritzy Fritschel died in June 2021 at the age of 91. Now, I, like I said, I went to the museum yesterday, <clears throat> and this is what is currently running um, at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. These are a few of the exhibits I saw. The first one is a first-in-the-world virtual reality exhibition. It's called The Journey Back, which applies cutting-edge technology to engage visitors on a journey as they walk through concentration camps with Holocaust survivors who experience them. The exhibition is a global game changer, revolutionizing the field of Holocaust memory through innovative technology and transportive storytelling. In this exhibit, the participant controls his or her own 360 degree experience it's almost like you're there as they walk with none other than Fritzy Fritschel and fellow survivor George Brent through historical and current day Auschwitz, Mauthausen, and Ebensee. So you're wearing this contraption on your head if you've ever seen virtual reality uh, gear. So you put this thing over your head, almost like a helmet, and you have an eyepiece and you have earpieces. And they shut off the lights and they turn on the screens and you are there in Auschwitz. And Fritzy is standing right in front of you telling you, like, as your guy telling you the story, like, this is where the train rolls in. This is where you're separated from your mother. This is where you go to get your head shaved. I mean, like, she tells you step by step from the time she's kidnapped to being put on these rail cars and that's where I felt claustrophobic because they put you into the rail car and you imagine and they have bodies appearing before you. So there's like no room to move. In fact, if you're going to fall asleep, you're actually leaning on somebody, but you're so terrified you can't sleep and it's claustrophobic. And there's only one 
bucket for everyone to um, go to the bathroom in. Horrendous, horrendous, horrendous. And um, even though this, um, this experience is only 30 minutes long, I got claustrophobic pretty bad. <laughs> I almost took the device off, but I'm like, no, I'm staying with this because um, she's telling this story. And now the Holocaust survivors are now dying out. They're, the youngest ones are in their 90s. Anyway, the virtual reality films have received global recognition and awards from a variety of prestigious film festivals, including world premiere at South by Southwest, Journey Award winner at Nashville Film Festival, winner of Best VR Storytelling at Cinequest Film and VR Festival, or Virtual Reality, official selection at Vancouver International Film Festival, and many more. Short of actually traveling to Auschwitz, this virtual reality tour is the next best thing. Everyone should experience it. Again, like I said, you virtually stand in the rail car that once transported Jews to the concentration camps and the gas chambers. You're brought into the barracks where they have to live. And you have like these little platforms that you're sleeping in with like 20 other people. The latrines are basically just holes in a bench. And I mean, there's just no more dignity because it's a public latrine and you're all going at the same time. The slave labor camps and finally the gas chambers themselves, you're brought there virtually. But, um, and it's hard to see, but um, I felt I owed it to Fritzy and to so many others to witness just a tiny fraction of what they went through, to experience something myself. Fritzie Fritschel on Living in the Barracks, this is what she had to say. Every night, as I was scared and hungry and cold, my Aunt Bella put her arms around me and whispered, tomorrow will be better. And this is what Fritzie held on to, this hope that tomorrow would be better. And the comforting words of her aunt and her aunt's hug and that marble-sized extra piece of bread is what kept her alive. Also on, ex on exhibit is the interactive holograms where you meet a virtual Holocaust survivor in the holographic theater. So imagine sitting in a theater and up on the stage is a speaker, but instead of the speaker being human, if you will, it's a hologram of a human. So it looks like somebody is sitting right in front of you talking to you, but it's a hologram. And this um, hologram of a survivor recounts their harrowing story of survival during the Holocaust. Yesterday, I saw a woman. She was a woman of very few words, but the way she survived is she was brought into a concentration camp. She had her hair shaved. She was naked. Everyone was naked. And one of the prison guards came up to her and said, what did you do before this? And just out of the blue, because she was a kid. So instead of saying, oh, as a kid, I went to school, you know, she just said, and she doesn't know why she said it, but she said, I used to play the cello. Well, this prison guard was overjoyed because they were putting together orchestras in each of the concentration camps and they were lacking a cello player. And that's what saved her life.
So anyway, um, and she had this unusual pair of shoes. So in order to uh, become a part of this orchestra, the prison guard said, I'll let you do this if you give me that pair of shoes. And this woman, she doesn't care about her shoes at this point. She's like, go ahead, take them. And later on, as a new batch of kids came into the concentration camp, her sister happened to be in that group and she recognized the shoes because they were pretty unusual. And so she was able to find her sister that way. And so they were able to stay together in Birkenau and then they moved to England together. So she was able to find both of her sisters that way because of her unusual shoes. Tell me that's not a miracle. So anyway, um, these holograms are talking to you about life and death at Auschwitz and other concentration camps. And after a short intro film, you will be able to ask questions of the hologram in this award-winning innovative exposition, expedition, exhibition. Oh my goodness. Let me try to say that again. After a short introduction film, the hologram speaks to you and then you can ask the hologram questions in this award-winning innovative exhibition. Every month there is a different hologram of a different survivor. And this month it just happens to be, I forgot her name, but she's a woman of few words. Um, So she will talk to you, but I think there's a lot she's holding back. Um, and some people are like that. They don't like to talk about it. Where Fritzy Fritschel, she would talk about anything. Now, that now, um, you know, the last of the Holocaust survivors are beginning to die. Like I said, I think the young, youngest ones now are like 90. So it's imperative that we all experience these exhibits because they're gone. We can't see them anymore. We can't look at the numbers branded into their arms. They're gone. As Fritzi said in a 2019 interview, I want the world to remember and to know to never, ever, ever, ever forget about the Holocaust. We may say in quote, never again, but we don't often mean never again. Never again must be never again. It must stop. And as we know, it hasn't. There has never been a more dire time in history to heed this warning and this wisdom. Part of remembering and honoring the Holocaust victims and survivors is to watch how we treat people and how we regard them. Americans don't even have to look much further than the refugees at our own southern border or at our Native Americans guarding sacred waters. It's happening here, too. Of course, of course, of course, please keep Ukraine in your thoughts, prayers, and donations. And of course, it's always happening in Africa. Um, You can't look anywhere in the world and not see genocide happening somewhere. If not in your nation, then it's happening in a neighboring nation. Finally, we really all, whether you believe in Christ or not, live by his words, do unto others as you would have done unto you. 
Now, in the spirit of all refugees and victims of oppression everywhere, Bedtime Stories from the Acoustic Bookshelf is featuring a poem called Home by Warsan Shire. But I'm going to issue a trigger warning right now. This poem is pretty stark and explicit. If you don't think you can handle that right now, I bid you arrivederci until next week when Podcast 52 will be on a much sunnier subject. So, really, if if you're going to be triggered or if you feel like you would, please um, leave now and I will see you later. Otherwise, here it is, the poem Home by Warsan Shire. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbors running faster than you, breath bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. No one leaves home unless home chases you. Fire under feet, hot blood in your belly. It's not something you ever thought of doing until the blade burnt threats into your neck. And even then, you carry the anthem under your breath. Only tearing up your passport in an airport toilet, sobbing as each mouthful of paper made it clear that you wouldn't be going back. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck feeding on newspaper unless the miles traveled means something more than a journey. No one crawls under fences. No one wants to be beaten, pitied. No one chooses refugee camps or strip searches where your body is left aching or prison because prison is safer than a city on fire and one prison guard in the night is better than a truckload of men who look like your father. No one could stomach it. No one's skin could be tough enough. The go-home blacks, refugees, dirty immigrants, asylum seekers, sucking our country dry, niggers their hands out. They smell strange, savage, messed up their country. Now they want to come and mess up ours. How do the words, the dirty looks, roll off your backs? Because maybe... The blow is softer softer than a limb torn off, or the words are more tender than 14 men between your legs, or the insults are easier to swallow than rubble, than bone, than your child body in pieces. I want to go home, but home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of the gun, and no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore, unless home told you to quicken your legs, leave your clothes behind, crawl through the desert, wade through the oceans, drown, save, be hungry, beg, 
Forget pride. Your survival is more important. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbors running faster than you, breath bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. No one leaves home unless home chases you, fire under feet, hot blood in your belly. It's not something you ever thought of doing until the blade burnt threats into your neck. And even then you carried the anthem under your breath, only tearing up your passport in an airport toilet, sobbing as each mouthful of paper made it clear that you wouldn't be going back. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck, feeding on newspaper, unless the miles traveled mean something more than a journey. No one crawls under fences. No one wants to be beaten pitied. No one chooses refugee camps or strip searches where your body is left aching or prison because prison is safer than a city on fire and one prison guard in the night is better than a truckload of men who look like your father. No one could take it. No one could stomach it. No one skin would be tough enough. The go home blacks, refugees, Dirty immigrants, asylum seekers, sucking our country dry, niggers with their hands out. They smell strange, savage, messed up their country, and now they want to mess up ours. How do the words, the dirty looks, roll off your backs? Maybe because the blow is softer than a limb torn off, or the words are more tender than 14 men between your legs, or the insults are easier to swallow than rubble, than bone, than your child body in pieces. I want to go home, but home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of the gun, and no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore, unless home told you to quicken your legs, leave your clothes behind, crawl through the desert, wade through the oceans, drown, save, be hungry, beg, forget pride. Your survival is more important. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ear saying, leave, run away from me. I I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere is safer than here. Until next week, arrivederci.